Usually at uh, Glory of Christ Fellowship, we uh, read scripture before the sermon. But today and for the next few weeks, we're going through our affirmation of faith. And today it is on the Word of God. So if you could follow along with me in your bulletin, we'll read it together. We believe that the Bible, consisting of 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is the infallible Word of God verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. We believe that God's intentions revealed in the Bible are the supreme and final authority in testing all claims about what is true and what is right. In matters not addressed by the Bible, what is true and right is assessed by criteria consistent with the teachings of Scripture. Let's go before the Lord and pray. And I want to start off just with a moment of silence and just let us fix our eyes upon the Lord, and then I'll pray. Lord David wrote in Psalm 119 that forever, O Lord, you have firmly fixed your word in the heavens, and your faithfulness endures to all generations. And Jesus said that the earth and heavens will pass away, but my words will never, ever pass away. Father, there's lots of details that we're going to talk about today, but above all things, Lord, I pray as I had been praying that we would walk away from today with a new sense of value of the Word of God and that we would walk away from today with a new sense of delighting in the Word of God. Father, we show our value by what we delight in. And I pray that today, Father, your word would seem more valuable and more desirable than all of our gadgets, all of our hobbies, all of the things that distract us from you. I pray that we would have a longing to run to you and be in your presence and listen to your word by your Holy Spirit so that we could be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, this world that we live in, in America in particular, is just screaming with messages that are competing with your word competing for our affections, competing for the space we have in our brains, competing for our time. And I pray today, Father, that by the Holy Spirit you would do war against all of that. She would sort of clean off of our plate all these things that distract us and that you would draw us unto yourself. Oh, Father, above everything, that's my prayer. Draw us unto yourself by your word and by your spirit, and I thank you for what you'll do today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, please do turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19. We are continuing today in our series called Behold Our God, Behold Your God, and in this series we're working through our membership affirmation of faith in order to press in a little bit into the details of what we believe so that we might love the Lord more, that we might love each other more, and that we might have a passion to pursue the lost more. So far, we have looked at the Trinity. We've looked at God the Father, God the Son, which is to say Jesus Christ. And we've looked at the Holy Spirit last week with Pastor Jordan. And now this week, we're going to ponder the Word of God, otherwise known as the Bible. And I want to start this morning by looking at Psalm 19, because in this psalm, King David so well captures the nature of what the Word of God is and how we ought to feel about it. 
So when we approach the subject of the word, there are facts to be known, that's for sure. But there's also a a heart to to be had. And I think that Psalm 19 captures both of those things. So if you'll please look with me at verse 1. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. To this point in the psalm, David is focusing on what we would call natural revelation or general revelation, which is to say that David is leading us to ponder the fact that God has revealed himself to humanity through creation. And by gazing upon the heavens and upon the earth, the Bible tells us that we're able to see something of the invisible attributes of God. When we look at the heavens and the earth, we see something of God's eternal power. We see something of his divine nature. We see his wisdom, his beauty, his sovereignty, his greatness, his nearness, his otherness, and so many things. There's so many times, beloved, where I'm just walking in the woods, being with the Lord, and I just burst out in worship because I see things about God there. God is revealing himself to us in the sky. He didn't just give us a sunrise today to give us another sunrise. He gave us a sunrise to reveal himself. And the Bible is telling us that indeed, indeed, the heavens declare the glory of God. The revelation of God through creation is so obvious and so inescapable that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that humankind is without excuse when it comes to God. We know in our hearts that God is. We know that God is powerful. We know that God is divine. We know that God is not a human and that he's not a a superhuman. We know that we will answer to this God someday and that our lives will, for our lives, we will have to give an account. And the only reason that some of us can claim to be atheists or agnostics with regard to God is because we have systematically suppressed what we know to be true. That's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1. Everybody believes, but we have all suppressed the knowledge of of what we know to be true. And because of our sin, we have become blind. We have been hardened by our own sin. We have come to love our sin more than we love anything else. And this is a kind of idolatry. It's a high form of idolatry. And this idolatry has blinded us from seeing what the eyes of even a small child can see. Namely, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day by day pours forth speech and night by night displays knowledge. I don't think the Bible's trying to be insulting when it says this. I think it's just true. It's only the fool that can say that there's no God. Creation itself is screaming to us day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute that God exists. This is natural revelation or general revelation. And we need it very badly. We need the emotional impact, the visceral experience of this kind of revelation of God. However, we need more than this. Because if all we had was the sky, if all we had was creation to think about who God is and what he's like, we wouldn't know very much. 
So creation can tell us that God is, but it really can't tell us who God is. And so God gave us something else, what we call specific revelation, or sometimes it's called special revelation. And this is to say that God revealed to us more details about who he is, about how he thinks, about how he feels, about what he expects from all of, all of his creation, and, and, and most especially from humanity. And because this is true, God spoke through messengers and preserved his words in this book that we call the Bible. And it is to the Bible as he knew it in his day that David turns now in verse 7. So if you'll please look with me at Psalm 19, verse 7. He goes from general revelation now to specific revelation and the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, beloved, do those words sound to you like the words of a man who has only an academic knowledge of the word of God and what it is and how it functions? Do those words sound like the words of a man who's simply honoring the word of God because as the king of Israel, it's his duty to honor the word of God? Or do those words sound to you like the words of a man who is delighting in the word of God because in them he has beheld his God, he has encountered his God, he has heard from his God, he has been guided by his God, he's been guarded by his God, he's been loved by his God, He's been protected by his God. His God has revealed himself to him through the words, and now this man is expressing his own love back to the Lord. Well, I think it's obvious as we look at Psalm 19, and again, one of my favorite psalms that I'm actually meditating on right now in my own quiet time, Psalm 119, a very long psalm. I think we see in both of these psalms that we're dealing with a lover of God here. We're not dealing with an academician or someone who's just doing his duty. We're dealing with someone who has learned to delight in God through the word of God. We're dealing with a man who was the king of Israel. And beloved, as the king of Israel, he had at his fingertips any kind of pleasures, any kind of possessions that he wanted. And it was this king who said that the word of God was more valuable to him than all of the gold in the world, even the finest gold in the world. And again, he had it at his fingertips. It was this king who said, that the word of God was sweeter to him than the drippings of the honeycomb or anything that's sweet that you can imagine, any kind of delicacy you can imagine, the best, the finest of foods, the word of God was more valuable to him, more satisfying to him than all of these things. And I pray that we'll hear the impact of his words. Again, here's a guy who could have had any possession and any pleasure, and he's saying, I think from his heart, 
that the word of God outweighs them all. The word of God is indeed more valuable than these things, and it is more satisfying than these things. And King David wanted his life to be marked by the word. He wanted his mind to be filled by the word. He wanted his heart to be absolutely rejoicing in the word. He wanted his mouth to be overflowing with the word. King David wanted to behold his God through the word of God that he might have fellowship with God. And that's really a key point. King David wanted to behold the glory of God through the word of God that he might have fellowship with his God. For him and for us, the ultimate goal here is not to know things about God, but it's to know God himself. It's to love him. It's to understand him. It's to cherish him. It's to walk in fellowship with him. It's to talk with him. It's to be with him all the days of our lives and indeed far, far beyond this life. Indeed, I think that the Father would have us today cherish his word and not just understand more about his word. To see his word as a means through which we access his heart, a means through which we access his mind, a means by which we understand his will and hopefully through the Holy Spirit do his will. So with this sort of relational, sort of cherishing nature in mind, I want to address with you four questions today. Namely, what do we believe about the Bible? Why do we believe it? What does it matter, and how then shall we live? So what do we believe, why do we believe it, what does it matter, and how then shall we live? Let's begin with this question, what do we believe about the Bible? And if you look there again in your insert, uh, you'll, you'll see this, our statement in the bulletin. That comes right out of our membership affirmation of faith, and I'll leave you to really meditate on that more carefully later. But for now, I just want to say it's a very brief statement. A lot more can be said. A lot more needs to be said. But that little paragraph does accurately capture what we believe about the Bible and and, 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 and at least set us on a path to to, uh, pressing more and more deeply into things that are important about the Bible. If you look carefully there, there are four specific claims that we make about the Bible, and I want to address those quickly. First of all, it says there that we believe that the revealed Word of God consists of the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the Old Testament, or 66 books all together. Uh, In a little bit, I'm going to point you to some resources to help you understand why we believe that that's true. But for right now, I just want to say that we as a church stand with historic Christianity, and when it comes to the Old Testament, we, we stand with historic Judaism in affirming that the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament are indeed the books through which God has revealed himself. We believe with all of our heart that there will never be a 67th or 68th or 69th book because there's no need for that anymore. The point of the word of God is to reveal the glory of God and the fullness of the glory of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ and so there's no need for further books. When people like the Mormons come along and say that God is still speaking and therefore we've added some books to the Bible, you can know that what they're saying is not true. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All that you need to know about God you see in Jesus Christ. So there's no more need for revelation. Before Jesus, there was a need to point to Jesus. After Jesus, there was a need to write about Jesus. But since Jesus has come, he lived, he died, he rose again from the dead, he he, he ascended to be with his Father, there's no more need for revelation. So we have the Bible in full that that we will always have until the day Jesus Christ returns. And, And again, please never forget that the fullness of the glory of God is 
revealed in and through Jesus Christ. All that God has to say about himself, he has said in Jesus, and that is sufficient communication for us. Second thing, we believe that the word of God is infallible, which is to say that the word of God can never fail. And the reason we believe that the word of God can never fail is because the God who spoke that word can never fail. Amen? A word is as powerful as the person who spoke the word. If a person makes you a promise and they can fail, then guess what? Their word can fail. But if a person makes you a promise and that person can never fail, then their word will never fail. And this is what we mean when we say that the Bible is infallible. When God speaks, things happen. When he wills something to be, it's going to be. Nothing can stop him. No one can get in his way. God's word cannot fail. God's word will never fail. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God means what he says, and he says what he means He's faithful to his promises and to his word all the days of our lives and all the eternity of his life. And beloved, I'm telling you, this is the bedrock of our lives. This is our hope and our stay. This is our anchor all the way that God keeps his word forever, O Lord. You have established your word in the heavens and your faithfulness endures to all generations, beloved. That's the great hope of life. I'm telling you, if you anchor your hope to anything else, you're going to be disappointed. But if you anchor your hope to the faithfulness of God and the certainty of his promises in the end, you will not be disappointed because God is faithful and his word will never, ever fail. Third, we believe that the Bible is verbally inspired by God. Now, I will admit to you at this point that there's a lot of mystery here and as to how this happened and what exactly this means. And there's no way in just a few minutes that I'm going to be able to even raise all the issues with you, much less solve all the issues with you. But I do want to say just a little bit about what we mean when we say that the Bible is verbally inspired. We do not mean that God sat down, you know, there's about 40 authors of the Bible, and we do not mean that he sat them all down and sort of dictated in the way that a CEO would dictate to his or her secretaries and said, now write this and write this and write that. There are times in the Bible where God spoke very specific words and told his prophets, I want you to say exactly these words, and they did say exactly these words, but more often than not, God worked through the personalities and the pens of the authors of the Bible, and without somehow, mysteriously, without offending their personalities and their writing styles and all of that, God said exactly what he wanted to say. So every single thing that God intended to say, he said exactly as he wanted to say it, but he used human personality. The Bible does have human authorship, but more importantly, it has divine authorship. And somehow, some way, God honored the humans, but he spoke his word exactly in the way that he wanted to speak his word. And I think that that's beautiful. There's a real mystery there. There's lots that I don't understand, to be honest with you. I don't really feel the need to understand it because I just think it's beautiful. A perfectly holy God using sinful people to speak his perfect word and then preserve it for us. Please listen to the words that the apostles Paul and Peter wrote about these issues because I think they're pretty instructive. I put them up here at least for you to to write down in your notes. Maybe you can look them up later. But here's what Paul said. He said, all scripture 
is breathed out by God. So that's a little bit mysterious, isn't it? Breathed out by God. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know what it means, that every single word down to the smallest detail was intended by the Holy Spirit and breathed out by the Holy Spirit. He is the primary author of the Bible, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then Peter adds this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21. through 21. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So don't get the idea that people just sat down and wrote what they thought about God and called it the Bible, because that's certainly not the claim of the Bible. And if you reject that truth, then you're rejecting the whole Bible. It says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That's really something to ponder. No prophecy from Genesis to Revelation was produced by the will of a man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think that last phrase is so important. How did God breathe out the word? Well, I don't know exactly. It's a little mysterious to me. But here's what Peter tells us. These 40 men spoke from God God used their personalities. He used their styles. When you read John, you read Peter, you read Paul, you can feel that they're different people. All that's preserved, and yet somehow they did this as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, the Spirit uses broken, sinful people to speak his specific word, his perfect word, in very specific ways and and, and communicated exactly what he intended. And that's really, I think, what's most important to know. Whatever the mystery is of how God did this, we need to understand that when we're reading the Bible, we are reading the very words of God. Recently in my life, I've been reading in my own quiet times uh, George Mueller's um, autobiography. It's a big, thick book, and so I've been a little hesitant to start it because once I start something, it's hard for me to, to stop. And so, But I'm about 100 pages through it, and I was just amazed at one point in his journey, is a little bit earlier in his life, he was a very well-educated man. He read lots of books. And he came to be confronted with this idea that God indeed was the author of the Bible. This idea was not new to him. He'd heard this idea most of his life, but he realized that he didn't actually believe what he believed. And in this moment, he realized that if God is the author of the Bible, he should be giving so much of his heart to the Bible and and a lot less of his heart and a lot less of his time to all these other books. And George Mueller began to devour the Bible. He began to eat it, drink it every single day of his life. You probably know George Mueller for his prayer life, but did you know that his, the way he describes his life is, he said that my entire life, all I've wanted to do is this. I want to prove the faithfulness of God. And you know how he did that? George Mueller prayed the promises of God. And you know how he found out the promises of God? He did it by reading the Word of God. So he devoured the Bible. He understood the promises. He kept track of the promises. I mean, he's got these amazing journals of all the prayers that he prayed and the answers that God gave. And this man was not just praying, God, give me this, God, give me that. He was praying, God, keep your promises according to your Word. Oh, beloved, if the word of God is the word of God indeed, then we should have a heart like King David, like George Mueller, to devour that thing. 
By the time George Mueller was 93 years old and breathed his last breath, he had read through the Bible 200 times. There's not a guy who is trying to set the Guinness Book of World Records, by the way, for how many times a person has read the Bible before they died. This is a guy who valued the Word of God. And so he ate it and ate it and ate it and ate it and ate it day in and day out. And I pray that we'll learn from his example and just know that indeed it's true. We don't live by bread and water alone. We live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We live by the promises of God. Literally, right now we are living by the promises of God. Fourth thing we believe about the Bible is that it is without error in the original manuscripts. Now the main reason that we believe that the Bible is without error is because God cannot err and he cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie, the Bible says. Psalm 12:6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And of course, the words of God are actually a lot more pure than sevenfold purified silver or gold. This is just a metaphor trying to help us understand. Imagine the purest thing that you can imagine and know that the words of God are more pure than that. And if his words are pure like that, they cannot mislead us. God cannot lie. It's impossible. Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God cannot lie. And beloved, therefore, his word cannot lie to us. It cannot lead us astray. And if it's true that God revealed himself through his word, then it must be true that his word is without error. It just must be true. Now, the reason that we claim that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts, the reason that it's put that way is because the only original language manuscripts we have in our possession are copies of copies of copies of copies. So let's take Moses, for instance. He wrote the vast majority of Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's pretty obvious that an editor came in and added a few little things here and there, but for the most part, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. We don't have his original writing. It didn't survive. But what we do have is a copy that was made off a copy, off a copy, off a copy, off a copy. All we have left is copies, and we have lots and lots of them. We have thousands upon thousands of copies. I think of the, Old Te- of the New Testament, I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 53 or 5,400 either full manuscripts or fragments of, of the Bible. We have a lot of them. The Bible is more well-attested than any ancient document in, in history by a long, long shot. But the thing is, when you begin to compare those manuscripts, you do find some errors in there. Now, the the vast majority of those errors are like spelling differences. One guy might have spelled a word a little bit differently than this guy. Or one guy might have chosen a little bit different form of a word than this guy did. Or maybe this person actually decided it was a different word and put it, uh, inserted a different word into this manuscript than what's in this manuscript. And that's why there's this science that we call... Uh, uh, um, literary criticism or, or I'm sorry, textual criticism, 
where people spend their whole entire lives just comparing the manuscripts of the Bible to get us back to the original, and we feel that we're in the 99.9% range of getting back to the original because the original manuscripts are so well attested. So the vast majority of the so-called errors in the Bible are completely inconsequential. They're like spelling errors and things like that. And every once in a while, there might be a difference between manuscripts that's somewhat substantial. But as far as I know, I've been studying these things pretty carefully since 1992. And as far as I know, there's not a single major doctrine that is in question because of an error in a manuscript. So the skeptics of the Bible will greatly exaggerate these errors. And they will try to persuade us that the, the Bible manuscripts that we have are a real mess, a total mess. A guy like Bart Ehrman would like you to believe that the Bible is just a mess, but that's absolutely not true. And so some, the next time someone comes up and tells you that they don't believe the Bible because it's filled with errors and it's filled with contradictions, just lovingly, not confrontationally, but just lovingly ask them to point out to you one specific example If they think that the Bible's contradicting itself or that it's filled with errors, just tell them, give me one example. And I'll promise you that most people will not be able to produce even one example. A few people will be able to produce some examples, and for them, we ought to be ready with some answers. And in a few minutes, I'm going to tell you um, where where to get some of those answers. But for now, mainly what I want to tell you is that even though there are some issues with the manuscripts, they're, they're really relatively insignificant, and we can very, very much trust the manuscripts that we have. I have a four-hour class that I teach about this, and indeed, I think that the manuscripts of the Bible are the most well-attested and most trustworthy manuscripts in all of human history. So, we believe with all of our hearts and with great passion. These are not just academic ideas to us. We believe that the Word of God consists in the 66 books of the Bible, We believe that the word of God is infallible, that it cannot fail. We believe that the word of God was breathed out by the Spirit of God and that somehow everything he meant was intended, that he intended was was perfectly preserved exactly as he meant it. And we believe that the word of God is without error in its original manuscripts because our God cannot lie and our God does not lie ever, ever, ever. God has has explicitly expressed his mind on a host of issues and now the, one of the imports of everything I've been saying is that his expressions of his mind about whatever issues he has addressed are authoritative and binding upon all humanity. If God has spoken about X, Y, or Z, then God's words are final. So the aim of our lives ought to be to know God by knowing his word. It ought to be listening to God by reading his word. It ought to be to submit to God by understanding his word. And if we will do this by his grace, then I think we'll come to discover the deep, deep joy that David wrote of in Psalm 19, in Psalm 119, and actually many other psalms as well. Those who hear and heed the word of God will know deep and lasting joy. That's just true. You tie the boat, you tie the, the boat of your joy or whatever, tie something to something else. You tie the ship of your joy to anything other than the word of God, and I promise you the day's gonna come where your joy disappoints you. But if you tie your hope of joy to God, you will not be disappointed. Believe me, you're gonna have days where you'll feel disappointed, but I'm telling you in the end, you will not be disappointed because our joy is amplified as we pursue the glory of God and trust in his word and trust what he says. 
And so, again, the statement says there at the end that because all of these things are true, the Bible is the final authority on a number of matters. And some of you might ask, what about all those things that the Bible doesn't directly address? Like the Bible doesn't directly tell you where to live, doesn't tell you what kind of car to have, doesn't tell, tell you what kind of clothes to wear, doesn't tell you where to work, it doesn't tell you who to marry, doesn't tell you whether to drink Coke or Pepsi. There's lots of different things that the Bible just does not tell you to do. So then what do you do? And our conviction is that as God's people, we ought to saturate our minds with his word, and we ought to live in Christian community where the content of much of our conversation is his word. And in discussing his word together, we can generally make wise decisions according to principles of wisdom. So yeah, maybe God won't tell me exactly where to live, but he'll give me principles that will help me make those kinds of decisions. So the word of God is the word of God, and it ought to be authoritative in the everyday things of our lives. So that's a little bit about what we believe. Now let me address this question, why do we believe it? And here I'm going to deliberately frustrate you because I'm basically going to say nothing about why we believe what we believe. How do you like those apples? So here, I'm going to address this question next, but guess what? I'm not going to address the question at all. And the reason is because I just really don't have time in any way to legitimately address the question of why we believe what we believe. As I said, I teach a four-hour course on these issues, and even in those four hours, I feel like I'm rushing along because there's just so much to say. So there's no way I can do justice to this question today, but what I can do is point you to some resources, and I really want to encourage you to look at one or more of these things and take them seriously because the question of the trustworthiness of the Bible is probably one of the most important questions questions in all of life. Without the Bible, oh, so much falls apart. And so I want to encourage you to look at one or more of these resources. First of all, I'll direct you to our website at gcfmn.org. And on that website, there's a little pull-down tab called Resources. And if you'll pull that down and click on Articles, there are two articles there under the heading Bible that are particularly helpful to you. One I wrote, it's called The Bible, Trustworthy and True. It's all my teaching notes, basically, for the course that I've been mentioning to you here. And then there's another statement that I think is one of the most important statements issued in the last 30 years or so on the issue of the errorlessness of the Bible or the inerrancy of the Bible. And it's just called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. It's six pages long or something like that. It's pretty readable, and it will help you to begin to get under your, your, your feet what are the basic issues and why you can have confidence in the errorlessness of the Bible. So so if I was you, I would start there. Go to the website, look at these couple of things. When it comes to books, I have a few recommendations for you. First of all, probably the best treatment of why we believe what we believe about the Bible is a book by a guy named Neil Lightfoot, and the book is just called How We Got the Bible. Is this stuff up there? Yeah, right there at the top. If, if, especially if you're parents of homeschool kids, I would write that first book down, How We Got the Bible. That is a really readable book, but it's detailed enough that it will help you to get a good edu education on the main issues. And if I was a homeschool parent, I would require every one of my kids, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids, to read this book, do a report on it, and really be familiar with the material because it's very important and it's very, very helpful. If you want something that's a little bit more detailed than F.F. Bruce's classic work, The Canon of Scripture, is a great choice. It's still readable, but as I said, more detailed and, uh, and has just more documentation in that book. F.F. Bruce is one of the best Bible scholars in probably the last hundred years. So really anything that he writes is great. 
If you're kind of a theological brainiac and these things aren't enough for you, then I want to recommend to you a very heavy uh, sort of academic book. This book is not easy to read, but it is some of the best scholarship out there on a host of issues with regard to Scripture. It was edited by two men, John Woodbridge and Don Carson, who has been one of my professors at at uh, Trinity Seminary for the last couple of years. And the book is called Hermeneutics, Authority, and Canon. Again, not an easy book to read, but if you're sort of a brainiac and you want more details, believe me, that book will lead you in the right way. And it's also extremely well documented, and so it will help you figure out more more things to read. Finally, I want to recommend to you a two-volume set that deals with all of the supposed contradictions in the Bible and deals with a number of issues that skeptics might raise. So it was mainly written by a guy named Norman Geisler. I had a privilege of meeting him a few years ago. Norman Geisler worked with a couple of other guys, and they wrote two books called When Critics Ask and When Skeptics Ask. When Critics Ask is like a handbook, and this is an amazing book. I meant to bring it today and forgot to bring it. If you want to look at it, I'll get you into the office and at least you can look at it. But again, if you're a homeschool family, I would strongly recommend you get this book, put it in your library. When, When Critics Ask, it goes through every single book of the Bible and it addresses all of the so called contradictions in the Bible, all of them. Even things that are controversial, like why God would command his people to destroy some other peoples, there are good arguments in there for why and how we can understand that. So it's just a helpful handbook that will help us have answers to those who have legitimate questions. And then they wrote up a follow-up book called When Skeptics Ask, and that's not so much about the issues with the biblical text. It's about questions that people have that are legitimate questions about Jesus Christ, about miracles, about the Holy Spirit, about morality, about a number of issues. And they're basically just trying to help us and equip us to, to answer people who have legitimate questions. For people who just want to argue, we're probably not going to be able to help them very much, right? So I would not get into it with people who just want to argue. I very quickly would want to say, do you really want answers to your questions? Because if you do, I would meet with someone for as long as it took. And I'm just, I want to put some confidence in your hearts, beloved, that there are good answers to every single question that can be raised about the Bible. And these resources will help you get in touch with those answers. And if you forget this or you just want to talk about it, give me a call or something because this is one of my favorite subjects, one of the things that I'm most passionate about in my life. Okay, now I want to talk about the very important question, what does all of this matter? Even if everything we believe about the Bible is true, who really cares? What does it matter? And I want to say that it matters a whole lot, and here's why. If it's true that God has specifically revealed himself through the Word of God, then we must read and relish the Word of God in order to behold our God. There's simply no other way. Think about it. If the only way God revealed the specific nature of his mind and his heart is through the Bible, then we must know the Bible in order to know God. There's not another way. And that puts the importance of the Bible at the very, very highest level. We must read and relish the Word of God in order to know God, to love God, to learn from God, to gain wisdom and insight from God, to gain a sense of purpose in life from God, to gain joy and hope and courage and perseverance from God. We must read and relish the Word of God in order to know the promises of God and cling to the promises of God and pray the promises of God as our good friend George Mueller did. 
We must read and relish the Word of God because it is the sword of the Spirit with which we engage in spiritual battle. In fact, it's the only offensive weapon we have in the war of this life. And His Word gives us so much clarity about what that battle's really about and what we ought to do. How would we know without the Bible? that our battle is not against flesh and blood, that it's not against human beings, even with this crazy situation over in Iraq. At the end of the day, our battle is not against the human beings who are killing other human beings. But instead, the Bible tells us that our battle is against uh, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly places. How would we know that without the Word of God, beloved? How would we have insight and clarity and be able to devise strategy. You know, there are probably our military answers to what's happening in Iraq, but I'm telling you, the real power for breaking the power of what's happening there is on our knees. If we can fight their power with the power of God, then we're fighting with a real power indeed. And it's the Bible that helps us see the reality of things like that. It's counterintuitive to everything in our flesh, but we need the Word of God to reveal the reality of the world as God sees it. How else would we know except by reading the Bible that Satan and all his workers are like lions that are seeking to devour us, to to kill us, to destroy us? How would we know that they don't just want to irritate us, but they want to kill us? But how would we know that no matter what kind of lion Satan is, that Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that when he comes into the house and roars... With the praise of God, the demons tremble and they flee in every direction. How would we know that Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than all of our enemies and therefore we have nothing to fear? How would we know? How would we know that at the end of the day, when Jesus is letting, done letting Satan wreak his havoc, that he will yank his chain, destroy his kingdom, and reign forever and ever and ever? How would we know that Jesus Christ, the great King of kings and Lord of lords and the high priest of heaven, will rule and reign as the unrivaled king for eternity without the word of God? Beloved, how would we know? I pray with all of my heart that that question will echo in our hearts. How would we know? Take five minutes. Get somewhere quiet. Close your eyes and imagine your life without the Word of God. Imagine your life completely devoid of the Word of God. There is so much that you would be without. There is so much that would cause you spiritually to starve to death. And beloved, so I want to return again to this statement, this truth. What does it matter? Well, we read and relish the word of God in order to behold our God that we might walk in fellowship with our God. There's just not another way. We read and relish the word of God in order to behold our God that we might walk in fellowship with our God. This morning I was reading a portion of Psalm 119 in my quiet times and I came across verses 89 and 90 that just grabbed my heart. Forever, O Lord, you have established your word in the heavens and your faithfulness endures to all generations and my heart just glowed with the hope that I have in Christ. The hope of my life isn't depending on anything else except the faithfulness of God. And if that's where my hope is, my hope is in a really great place. Beloved, we read and relish the word so that we can see his glory and walk in fellowship with him. That's what it's really all about. It's not about duty. This is about delight. 
This is not about religious ritual. It's about a necessity of life. Indeed, we don't live by bread and water alone. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God the Father. And I pray with all my heart that we will be a church that cherishes the word of God. Not just a church who has a sort of academic value and can make all the right theological statements, but who has a relational cherishing of the word of God and the God of the word. I pray that the word of God will dwell in us very richly so that we can teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as the Bible says. And I pray, O Lord, that you will hear our prayer. Now, one more question, a very, very brief answer for the day. How then shall we live? If the Bible is indeed the word of God and more necessary for life than bread and water, then how shall we live? Near the end of his gospel, John wrote these words. This comes from John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the word of God is given to us in order to reveal the glory of God, and the fullness of the glory of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. The reason that the fullness of the glory of God was revealed in Jesus is so that we would believe in him. So the first and most important thing that we ought to do in response to the fact that God has spoken is we ought to believe in Jesus. Reading the Bible is good. Believing in Jesus is better. And certainly, believing in Jesus is something that begins in a moment in time, but then it's something that marks our life for all of time. Believing in Jesus is like breathing for the one who is in Christ. We believe and believe and believe and believe and believe. This is how we make progress. This is how we have fellowship. We look to the word. We believe in Jesus Christ and we cling to him. So the first and most important thing we can do and keep on doing is believe. Jesus said that our only work in this life is to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. And so may we believe today. And I think that the way we do this, beloved, is by just simply going to the word day by day. Open it up, read it, meditate on it, talk to your Father, and believe in his promises. From there, we draw near to God, we listen to him, and then we seek by his spirit to do his will. So my very simple answer is, what should we do? We should believe in Christ, we should draw near to Christ, we should do the will of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me pray now that God would help us with these things. Father, I thank you so much for the time that you have given us here to think about the word of God and to meditate probably more importantly on you, the God of the word. Lord, I feel just like a pile of weakness today. All I have is weakness to give to you, but I give my weakness to you and I pray that through my weakness that you would display your strength and through your word you would reveal your glory. I pray again today, Father, that the end result of this message would be that we would have a longing to go home or wherever we're going to go today and relish the word of God. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would remove distractions and lead us into that place where we can find life everlasting. And I thank you, Father, for what you'll do now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.